0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Muhammad Gamaldeen, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. William Carruthers about his new book, Flooded Past, UNESCO, Nubia, and the Recolonization of Archaeology. Dr. William Carruthers is a historian of archaeology, the field sciences and heritage. He examines the relationship of those disciplines, their practices, and their material vestiges with the modern and the contemporary worlds, particularly across the Middle East and into South Asia. He is currently an honorary lecturer in the Department of Art History and World Art Studies at the University of East, uh, of East Anglia. Among others, he has received fellowships from the Leverhulme Trust, the goethe Hingel Stefan, the Max weber Stefan, the AHRC and the European Commission. He holds a PhD in the history and philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge and earlier degrees in archaeology from the University College London Institute of Archaeology and has worked in archaeology and heritage in both the UK and Egypt. Dr. William Carruthers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, first, uh, Will, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. That is, where you were born, raised, where you went to school, uh, how you became interested, uh, in archaeology, uh, and the flooding around the uh, high dam, and whether you had a mentor or scholarly work that drove your interest, uh, research-wise
1: okay, great so um yeah, uh obviously I'm from the u k um I ended up in archaeology because I was i mean this is like twenty years ago now, um trying to choose a degree that I thought was interesting. I was always interested in history um and then I was just like you know archaeology came up as a possible option and um it seemed like an it seemed like an interesting thing to do. Um, I ended up doing a, a, an undergraduate degree in Egyptian archaeology um, at, at UCL, which I think sort of fairly uniquely at the time um, sort of concentrated occasionally on like sort of the politics of archaeology and sort of the sort of public archaeology components of that sort of work um in recent years like that institution has also become very strong and sort of always becoming strong then anyway in museum and heritage studies so like these things were like there from the beginning for me um I um worked sort of in in the archaeological heritage worlds sort of both in the UK and, and then in Egypt where I like before starting an MA, um, live for a couple of years and sort of learn Arabic, Um, I went back and I was going to do a PhD. I I basically did uh, what's called an MRes in archaeology, which is sort of meant to be an MA that's also sort of the first year of a PhD in the UK system. Um, It turned into more of my supervisor at the time was David who's still at the Institute of Archaeology, um, it sort of turned into more of a historical project. And so I I ended up applying for PhDs all over the place and ended up um, at Cambridge um, in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. Um, it, It seemed like a good place to be to sort of actually really think about how to write the history of archaeology, which I think up until, you know... Fairly recently has been sort of a history of great men um, and sort of maybe an intellectual history, too. Um, Like, for instance, there's a really well-known book by the archaeologist Bruce Trigger that's a history of archaeological thought. Um, I, I think being in history of science enabled me to think a lot more about how archaeology as a practice has actually happened and what it means in terms of sort of, you know, something that takes place somewhere with, you know, there's a very famous Steve Shapin book that has this title that sort of like takes place somewhere with people, with objects, with things, that kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, being at Cambridge with a group of really interesting scholars sort of let me think about that um, in a really useful way. Um And then obviously since then I've had like a bunch of postdocs and this project, this book project, Flooded Pasts, is is basically a postdoc project. My PhD dissertation was on sort of archaeology in like, I guess, 1950s Egypt, really, and trying to work out what happened then or didn't happen that meant there was any sort of change in how archaeology around that time in Egypt worked. Um, writing Flooded Past was like a sort of logical next step because what happens in the 1960s in Egypt and Sudan is this massive UNESCO campaign to save the archaeological remains, temples behind the Aswan High Dam that are going to get flooded. Um, they would never really been sort of... Um, other than like the official book about it, there never really been like a lengthy sort of critical history of that. But it's really central, I think, to how a lot of people have thought about post-war archaeology and the development of heritage. It's like fairly entangled in the development of the 1972 World Heritage Convention, for instance. So it was it was a project that was both chronologically um quite easy for me, me to work on, I think, but also something where it seemed like there's like this fairly surprising gap. I hate talking about gaps in the literature, but there there sort of was one. Um, and it just gave me a lot of scope to do something hopefully interesting and, and useful, you know, and it really, you know, like last year around, actually around the time the book came out, which was sort of a massive coincidence uh, was the 50th anniversary of the world heritage convention. So, you know, it, it's like a good time, I think, to be thinking about a lot of this stuff and the sort of issues the book raises. Um, yeah. And so, I I mean, I think that's pretty much um, a good summary of sort of how this, this came about. I mean, it's like various people in the history of science I could, um, mentioned so Jim Secord who was my PhD supervisor sort of has really thought about how like knowledge moves in the world and again I think that's sort of something that is important to this this book um, Christina Riggs who's been a postdoctoral mentor who's now at, she's at the University of Durham um, has really done a lot of fine grained work on the history of um, Egyptology, archaeology in particular that's been really useful um to be in conversation with and so you know it's it's sort of the book itself is like it's i think it's sort of it's it's like it's an interdisciplinary volume right at heart um and it's i think it's sort of is in conversation with all of those sort of um like history, history of science, archaeology, heritage, but also like like um, histories of modern Egypt and Sudan, where, you know, people like Donald Reed, um, Elliot Coller have obviously written um, about the history of archaeology, Egyptology, from like pretty critical perspectives. Um, but there was also really, you know, it, it's it's funny, a lot of these histories sort of stop in the early 20th century, and you know, I always sort of wondered, well, what is anything different <laughs> after that? Is it just too recent for anyone to talk about? Uh, and this this book, I guess, is also like a way of trying to think about that a bit, um, and and what it even means practically to try and write a project, write and research a project like that. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of so you know, um, I think, for instance. Someone like Halad Fahmi's sort of work around the Egyptian archive is like really interesting there too to think about, just in terms of like what you can and can't do and sort of the politics of access. Um, that kind of thing. Um yeah. Um and that's I think that's pretty much where this this book is. <laughs> um
0: no, great. Thank you so much for uh Answer. Um. So I, I get. This sort of ties into uh what you spoke about. Um. But maybe speak a little bit more how um you uh came to write Flooded Past um during your postdoc uh how it built out of your uh dissertation. Uh, maybe just expand a little bit more uh, uh about the uh, how you got into uh, uh the the work.
1: So, yeah, just to reiterate, the, the book that's sort of that, no, the event or series of events that's central to the book um, is it's so it's known as UNESCO's international campaign to sa- save the monuments of Nubia. So, this takes place from 1960 until 1980 um, in both Egypt and Sudan. And the reason this, this campaign um, happens is because. As we all know, uh, Egypt builds the Aswan High Dam starting in 1960, um, and the floods from the dam are going to be greater than anything, any flood uh, before. So there'd been another Aswan Dam built in the early 20th century and heightened a couple of times, which flooded the area to the south of it, which is you know the region of Nubia, but only to a certain height and only ever as far as the Egyptian Sudanese or the Egyptian border with the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, right? Um, so as a result of the earlier dam, there were archaeological surveys, um, but they, you know, were limited to the extent of the flooding. The Nubians themselves also had to sort of move their settlements. Um, but with the high dam, everything, you know, the flooding is much more total, Um so the nubians are forced to migrate both within egypt and sudan everything is going to be flooded pretty much um, and so um, unesco in collaboration with the egyptian and sudanese governments and a host of sort of international experts um launches this campaign um which goes on for 20 years um you see all the major temples that are located in Nubia are sort of taken to bits and moved either sort of domestically or internationally so like famously the Temple of Dandoras is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York um, and yeah at the same time the, um, the Nubians are forced to sort of migrate essentially within Egypt and Sudan which is sort of was a at times contested uh, process and still is. So I, this this book, um, I think, um, hits upon a number of issues that were sort of um, involved in my dissertation. But it's it like it does it with a. Um, like uh, a, a sort of really complex and rich amount of material that my dissertation, <laughs> I, I think, didn't have to deal with in a sense. You know, my dissertation ended up being like a fairly limited study of really a lot of it. What happened at sort of one archaeological site near Cairo in the mid nineteen fifties, and how that overlapped with sort of the sort of early years of of NASA and and the three officers. This is sort of. Um, the book itself is like something else and you know we're in like the the i guess the years when like um you know what what becomes or became revolutionary egypt in particular is really um really being established at the same time you know egypt becomes sort of this pan-arab non-aligned figurehead and all this stuff is playing into this campaign at the same time as you have, like, sort of the the small-scale politics of archaeological work um, happening as you have thousands of people moving up and down the desert, um, digging stuff up, taking stuff apart. And, you know, you've got, like, sort of also the, you know, archaeology, the politics of archaeology is also, I think, the politics of people often and you know what what the campaign um allows discussion of is the way people are you know in this case the nubians and it's tens of thousands of people are impacted by sort of this this entanglement of of like irrigation and archaeology because one of the major arguments of the book and um is that the sort of history of archaeological work in the region has created the Nubians um, as a people who, or helped to create them as a a very sort of marginal group who it's pretty safe um, to uh, sort of objectify in a sense and ignore. (laughs) So, you know, Nubia has become by the 60s um, a land... That you know, the, the representation I think is is a place of sort of it's like a desolate um, series of Nile side ruins, not people, not somewhere where people actually live. So, you know, there are ethnological campaigns essentially happening at the same time before the forced migrations take place or the resettlements. Um, but it's sort of interesting how they overlap or don't overlap with the archaeological work. so I think you know the dis the, my my dissertation was like a fairly small scale thing and I think what the book allows is like this sort of filtering between or switching between scales a lot more to hopefully produce something that um, shows why that is a sort of useful thing to be doing um, you know and I, I one one thing i think hopefully the book addresses it's like very hard sometimes um, to if, if you'll say you say you're writing the history of archaeology or something you often end up having to work really hard to explain to people why that's something relevant and that that it might be good for them to be thinking about. Um, And I, you know, I think hopefully the, the book manages to do that by explaining why moving between these sort of large and small scale, um, analyses is actually sort of a useful thing to be doing analytically um i think that's probably answered your question
0: (laughs) yes yes no that that's great um so i maybe stepping back a little bit um I, i was hoping uh you could paint a picture for our listeners um maybe some of them uh, who study Egypt and Middle Eastern studies know about the geography and the natural environment. But could you paint a picture for our listeners about the natural environment and landscapes that make up the spaces of the high dam, Lake Nasser and Nubia, and maybe speak some about the region and its historical connections to colonialism? Sure. So so Nubia essentially
1: sort of is the region south of Aswan in Egypt and it sort of is also in the northern part of Sudan, right? So um, historically it was very important and um, I think um, it's also, however, in, in sort of the history of like modern Egypt and Sudan and their various sort of formations being this marginal region but what it you know so it it's basically a Nile side um, region dotted with settlements um, and sort of um, agricultural land I guess um, so yeah as you know it's it's sort of caught up in um, Nubia sort of caught up in Egypt sort of move to obtain perennial irrigation and um, And what that means, ultimately, is that as the high dam is built, um, what used to be an annual inundation of the River Nile, which obviously runs throughout Nubia, um, becomes in Egypt a controlled inundation. So it's year-round. And the, the sort of reservoir that builds up behind to the south of the high dam um, becomes a lake so that lake is called lake Nasser in egypt it's called lake nubia um, in sudan and so also obviously the the nubian settlements that are dotted along that lake um the sort of under it <laughs> um by about i think the floods. From the dam ends in about 1970, so it takes. A, it starts in 1964 at the beginning of the construction of the second stage of the high dam, so it, it takes six years to fill up. Um, the Nubians are resettled around 1964 1965 by their respective governments. So the Egyptian Nubians go to the region of New Nubia, which is located sort of at Komombo, which is about 30 miles north of Aswan. Um, the Sudanese Nubian population. Um, goes a long way to the south on the Atbara River to somewhere called Hashim al Geba which is like another, it's like a land reclamation and resettlement scheme. And there are sort of many of those schemes in Sudan, obviously. And basically the Nubians are like um, a population caught up, not only, you know, like these irrigation policies, like the first Aswan Dam is built under the control of like the British occupation, British irrigation engineers um obviously heavily involved in this but they're also sort of caught up in the politics of Egypt's own sort of this is what Eve Trout Powell calls triangulated conquest i think so you know the the politics of the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan and and you know so they're sort of stuck in the middle of all of this um and what as a re- one result is that what i think is like a fairly porous border At times with you know the coming of the high dam is obviously made a lot harder because the borders underwater. Um and so you have this like the separation of these Nubian populations too, who had always sort of been in touch previously. And it's it's so they're sort of marginal, I think, in both countries, but but also Caught up in these these various sort of forms of imperialism and colonialism, um, which means ultimately, of course, they, they sort of lose out <laughs> as a result of this this the dam building, um, and you know the the sort of ethnological surveys that take place um, during the construction of the high dam. I think are pretty functional affairs. You know, their main goal. Is to enable the successful, um, in in you know whoever's definition resettlement of these populations in in their respective countries. Um, there is not a huge amount of Nubian agency within that, and I think what you see these days is um, they're sort of now more. There were there were sort of protests at the time on, on the Sudanese side of the border in the town of Wadi Halfa, which is one of the main. Nubian centers um, to the extent that some people stayed behind, uh, and the government in Sudan ultimately built something, you know, called New Wadi Halfa, although that took a while. Um, And I think what you see these days is sort of calls for a right to return to Nubia that may or may not, you know, ultimately be successful. So there's, you know, I think for a long time, those calls were kept pretty quiet um and that sort of relates to the politics of the two countries themselves and how they treat minorities um but what you're seeing is they've sort of become less quiet but there's no necessary resolution on the horizon
0: um yeah so (laughs) Hopefully, I think that. No, that's that's very good. And we'll come back to that, that last point uh, uh, further, uh, further down um, in our conversation. But my next question is more on the archival side of things. So your research uses a wide range of archival material. Um, so could you expand here for our listeners on the sources for your study? Also... Could you expand on the troubles related to finding the archive, especially as it relates to Nubia? Yeah, sure.
1: So, I, I you know, I think that's, like, one of the central questions is, like, what even is the archive here? And so the book sort of mixes sort of archaeological archives, which I could access with, you know, official, like, state archives, and also makes a lot of use of sort of... Um, like magazine, newspaper, material. Um, there's no one... So there's no one archive, let's say, for the Nubian campaign. Um, one of the results of that project was that, you know, UNESCO has an archive of sort of like the the bureaucracy of it. Um, but ultimately what happens is you have a whole load of... Um, Archeological teams from various countries or institutions um, descending upon Nubia to do these digs. So they are they take whatever material they create back with them, and so often these are like European, North American um, archives, which in many cases are still working archives because this material still isn't all published, like sixty years later um so th- there's sort of like this sort of your one thing writing this book is sort of identifying where that, that material is kept which bits of it are actually usable and accessible um and then sort of trying to work out let's say um in Egypt also what is accessible there so obviously if you go if you're granted access to uh, the national archive in cairo which is not at all a given there are there are sort of um limits i think on the extent to which the material held there is useful for a project like this i think a lot of it, it just sort of peters out in the 1950s um or at least material i've seen um i i was allowed into what is called... So one of the results of the campaign is there's the Nubia Museum in Aswan um, is built and founded in the late 90s. Um, and so there, there's something known as the Documentation Centre, which I believe... Um, so it's a bunch of material, archival material related to the work in Nubia um, that was kept in a storage... Um, I guess like a then Egyptian Department of Antiquities storage magazine um, somewhere near the first Aswan Dam that was sort of recovered at some point and taken to the museum for conservation Um, and that um, was I don't think is officially opened (laughs) to researchers and through a you know strange series of events i was granted access to this for a couple of weeks so I spent like a very nice couple of weeks working there but you know that's entirely both privilege luck i don't know um yeah and it sort of felt like researching this book i was trying to piece together a lot of different elements of a of a of a puzzle that isn't really in a sense sort of one you can piece together because there is just so much material produced as a result of this work um it's everywhere and you know it's um terms of access differ all over the place i think i as a scholar coming from the uk um have it much easier (laughs) in in terms of that sort of access and that you know that's ultimately one reason this book got written um yeah and then in sudan i mean one of the other ironies is a lot of the material from sudan is actually in london um so one of the unesco consultants or experts he became a consultant expert involved in the work was this american archaeologist called bill adams who um worked for the sudanese government for about four or five years um essentially sort of surveying archaeological sites uh in an attempt to promote uh the possibility of other people excavating them for sudan he also created um what he called a documentation centre there for the Sudanese Antiquities Service. And he left Sudan, I think, in 1964 or 1965. And he hadn't, again, written up any of this material. And you will find every single sort of archaeological manual ever written for the last hundred years, telling people that they must write up their material. And so he sort of negotiated taking the material back with him to the US, Um, and, you know, he sort of then worked on it in the US for decades, I guess, and ultimately donated it to the British Museum in London. So actually a lot of the Sudanese material, um, the archive sort of exists in London, which was a surprise to me um, doing the research for this book. Um, Yeah, and it's been like sort of piecing together a fairly complex at times fairly securitized puzzle and and wondering how best to write about that um you know in the sense that um i'm obviously not trying to tell um some sort of comprehensive story i'm trying to give an account of this work that actually deals on some level with issues like the archive and also it's um it's organization so for instance like archaeological archives are pretty obviously organized in the way that archaeologists want to use them and that's not going to be the way that i mean they're like working archives often that's not going to be the way that let's say a historian (laughs) might might want them to be and it's sort of also working with sort of issues like that all the time um and so, you know, it's all sort of that kind of challenge, too. And, you know, you've sort of got to look at this material. Um, you know, what's the phrase? Um, sort of not reading, you know, you're reading it against the grain, really. And I think um, Anne-Laura Stoller uses along the grain. And it's it's all these things um, go into sort of trying to work out how to write something like this. Um no, oh,
0: yeah. that's, uh, it, it speaks to the complexity of the archive, and it's fascinating how the archive moves around. Uh, uh. Yeah, I
1: think it, it's it really, like, it's a, it's a very mobile, you know, some of it is, like, very obviously in a, in a certain place, and is either, you know, easily accessible or, or not at all, and then the rest of it does just sort of move around with scholars, I guess. Um, in, in a way that yeah you know it's I guess they're always writing new versions of Nubia as well as a result of all of this and then like the earlier material so the book sort of goes into the um like genealogies of this campaign a lot of that material it's completely unclear where it is you know so I sort of rely on publications official reports um and I've occasion you know, you occasionally like find like the odds sort of I don't know record related to it, but I'm not I, I guess like if if they're anywhere, they you know the earlier campaigns were run by the Egyptian government. Um the material might be somewhere in Cairo, but I've never seen it. Um I don't know if it's it exists so it's very hard at least i think with the archaeological archives you do get quite a good sense of how like archaeological practice works but there are just some parts of that that are still like inaccessible um and that's you know part of the, the story is that you know these these surveys are sort of nominally sort of recording the past of a region but it's you know, it's who they actually record it for um, is at times unclear, especially, especially when you can't actually see
0: the records. Um, yeah, very true. Uh, so let's jump in. Uh, your introduction is subtitled Flooding Nubia. Could you speak to the connections between the rising waters and the speed to document the monuments?
1: Um yeah well i i think it's sort of reading through all this material you, you... <laughs> there there is always this sense that the flood is coming but you know also one thing to bear in mind is that all these monuments and sites are flooded sometimes anyway and always have been because of the nile's inundation and um, what this you know what the coming of the high dam obviously does is make this a lot more urgent so there's like more there is sort of the campaign comes with like a sort of panoply of like press attention um that really like focuses on the urgency of the work and so you you know you get the impression um that people are thinking um yeah, you know, there needs to be some sustained effort. But at the same time, it's that's not like a coherent picture. And, you know, people weren't necessarily even all that interested in working in Nubia. I mean, so a lot of the... I think there's this feeling amongst archaeologists because, like, wh- one of the things that happens is the Egyptian and Sudanese governments do promote this um work fairly heavily amongst european north american institutions who are the ones who particularly in egypt have historically um wanted to go and extract stuff archaeologically i guess um but amongst them there's quite often this understanding or this idea that um nubia has been like excavated it's been done Um, The earlier surveys, which take place twice in the early decades of the 20th century, found everything that was worth finding institutions, if they want them, have the collections they need. Um, And, you know, it's so there's a very varied response and sort of degrees of enthusiasm about even going to Nubia and and what ultimately... um, makes it compelling for a lot of people is the fact that um, Egypt in particular sort of promises future excavation concessions in the north of the country sort of basically around the pyramids in that sort of area which are are compelling to institutions and there's sort of this um, then Sudan, I think that the terms of like object division after excavation, are more generous than those in egypt so that means some people want to go to sudan there are also um sort of sudan almost becomes a testing ground for certain scientific methods i guess um so there's never like an all-out like panic about you know even as the water is rising not everyone is sort of like hurrying to dig it's it's a very sort of variegated sort of complex process and even with the movement of the temples um let's say you know this this sort of i think lucia allays who's a historian of um architecture um discusses this really well in a couple of articles um you know the governments themselves were involved in starting to take the temp the temples apart um, and they sort of use them as collateral in some cases for getting in don't financial um contributions to the campaign, and in particular that sort of major um <laughs> the major early and really famous sort of movement of a temple is the two temples at Abbey Symbol, which are ultimately sort of cut up um lifted higher away from the floods and then put back together again um but the funding of that and how that was not the old the first um sort of solution to moving them and it happened a, as a result of that being the way the US in the end could fund it um so that was something that was a process that was really down to the wire and then the other major temple movement is the temple complex on Philae, just south of Aswan, where it's moved to a different island. Um, and basically, time was was brought for that in the sense that there was sort of like a a small uh, reservoir formed between the first Aswan Dam and the site of the High Dam, which meant Philae ended up in a sort of controlled state of flood it wasn't total and that was a campaign and process of moving that only started in the late 60s and again there were sort of various conversations about how it would be funded um yeah and you know it was not like this rushed process it all sort of had to be negotiated at every point. Um, and ultimately, you know, like, you know, UNESCO, I think, used the campaign very skillfully and strategically to promote the idea of world heritage and people coming together to save and preserve stuff. Um, but if you really sort of read into the, the archives and, and the publications, what you see is like it's a very piecemeal, scattered um, process where, the, you know, various sort of interests, even of what sort of past is at play. Um, sort of a pretty obvious, you know, everyone's in a sense after the the material they want. Um, So the idea that like, this is sort of this incredibly altruistic um, total recovery of the material, the archeological material that might be left in the region um, is entirely sort of false, (laughs) um there's there's like a lot of vested interests at play essentially so you know also like a lot of stuff just isn't excavated it's not deemed to be worthy um and i think as is fairly um quite often standard for archaeological practice material is like measured like potsherds in particular of which there are thousands get measured and then if they're not deemed particularly interesting just thrown away on site you know it's not like this this total recovery of something it's it's a, it's, it's a piecemeal strategic recovery that occasionally gets alarmed by where the floodwaters are <laughs> um but that's not always primary concern um you know it's also why you have like lots of photos of temples halfway submerged not only because like that could happen as a result of all this but also because it's like quite a nice photo opportunity to promote more work and i you know it's uh, what what it sort of also reveals is this interplay between sort of unesco as an organisation and all these other various institutions and governments who are involved in this project and that interplay is not at all straightforward um you know it's never clear who really has agency it's like everyone and no one i think it's sort of become quite it became quite a fashionable thing to start sort of blaming unesco for everything but you realize unesco unesco only has like a certain degree of agency in all of this because ultimately it's working at the behest of its member states, but also then within the secretariat itself, various individuals have have power. You know, it's a very sort of very, very complex process um, as to how this all actually pans out and whether it's urgent or not, or, you know, what is deemed interesting and salvageable
0: um, ultimately. Fascinating. Uh, so you say in chapter one, And I quote, uh, water made Nubia and Nubians contingent subjects of circumstances. It also made them and the region in which they lived more visible. Uh, Could you speak some on this tension between the way the waters displaced Nubians in Egypt and the Sudan and how it added a certain level of renewed sight on the region? Sure, sure.
1: So, I mean, obviously, the waters destroy everyone's homes. Like, that's that the ultimate outcome of this project. Um, and the high dam is that settlements are destroyed, lives are destroyed, people are forced to migrate. I think at the same time, um, the fact that there's all this global attention on the UNESCO campaign, but also the fact there's an ethnological campaign, uh, in both countries means not only that sort of Nubian identity sort of coheres, and, you know, this has been happening for decades anyway, because of the earlier Aswan Dam, various things. Um, you know, they, they are, the campaign, the UNESCO campaign in particular comes with um, a large amount of publicity. So, even as it's discussing like ancient monuments, Nubians are a part of that. and then you know the, the Egyptian and Sudanese governments also promote this resettlement as part of the modernization of their countries. Um, so the irony is the Nubians are sort of swept up in these modernization discourses um, even as you know their homes are destroyed, and you know they're sort of basically a pawn in in the modernization rhetoric but also um what becomes the heritage rhetoric um you know and it's they're sort of pretty voiceless yet at the same time um visible (laughs) like you know like visible in the sense that there's a ton of pictures that are used to promote this work um and that sort of it sort of plays out in this sort of yeah, um, not very pleasant interplay between those things. <laughs> um, and I think you know it, I think we see like now we see the results of how that's that's panned out when again you have like these calls for a right to return. um... That are sort of getting louder. It's not. It's not particularly surprising, given this history, right?
0: Uh, that's uh, very true, uh, and the. Uh, but it says something as well about the continued, uh, uh, the continued uh, displacement of the populations and their their connection to the various states that they reside in uh, uh, today. Yeah. Um, uh, so Absolutely. the uh, next question I had uh, was about uh, the uh, this zone, um, and, and, and I'll spell that out for you. Uh, but I love how you do not treat the Nile River as one whole. Um, uh, you make it uh, m- uh, mm-hmm. made up of different zones, um, and your focus is on the region in southern egypt and northern sudan um it's kind of sent yeah. this kind of uh, brings up uh, ideas about the various layers of sovereignty um so how does this lens mm-hmm. a riverine uh riverine region uh due to the Aswan dam and the high dam uh, help to expand our views of sovereignty and mobility and it also allows you to use uh valeska huber's theoretical frame of a channeling to better better understand movement of labor and people if you could speak some on that
1: yeah i mean i think it like in in terms of sovereignty what it what it clearly happens is that you know egypt and sudan sort of gain sovereignty over this sort of this region south of the dams um yet at the same time it allows like the yeah as you know in Huber's formulation i guess um like it allows the channeling not only of the Nubians to specific locations, but also of like the many sort of, there are various degrees of channeling going on amongst the people who are working on the archaeological campaigns, right? Um, so for instance, you know, you have like Egyptian, Sudanese, also international experts, officials sort of flying in and out. Um, at times also traveling down the up and down the river on boats who can move like pretty freely. Um, yet at the same time you have all these laborers involved with the work who that is not necessarily like, like an option for. So what it's, it's this thing where it sort of, um, sort of emphasizes like these regimes of like mobility, um, within these countries that are developing, um, as a result of this work. And you know, like those regimes had always existed, let's say, in, in archaeological work. Um, you know, because beyond like sort of the laborers themselves, there's always this sort of there's a group of overseers quite famously called the the GUFTIS who um are sort of trained and sort of coalesce as a group within the late nineteenth century. And still work to sort of oversee a lot of the archaeological work that's taking place today. And they have, like, again, they have like sort of different privileges of movement to the laborers. Um, so there are there are like these various sort of levels of who is allowed where, how they're able to get there, um, and you know, so you, on. The, <laughs> You know no one is you know again thinking about the way this has been presented the nubian campaign in particular is presented as a coherent whole i think what thinking about it in terms of like social the the mobility of people and their channeling allows it is it, sort of like the, the the sense that actually that's there's nothing that's like whole about this um there are various sort of social levels that are revealed pretty explicitly by this work you know we have like laborers at one taking apart one temple somewhere in egyptian nubia who um send sort of letters of complaint that supplies aren't arriving um you know that kind of thing, and they're like being treated pretty badly, uh, and it becomes very obvious um, in what they're writing that, that like that's sort of the, the case. Um, and again, there's there's like an archival point here as well because you have to like a lot of you sometimes get material like that, which is great because it's like pretty direct, um, um and helps you know, establish the argument, but also you're reading like a lot of diaries written by archaeologists that obviously present what's going on in, in a very particular way from a particular perspective. Um sort of quite sort of self-serving narratives at a time and again like at times and like reading between the lines um is fairly necessary. But I think what it what it again allows is like this picture of very variegated um mobility that you know and i in a sense it's sort of it's like this sort of regional but then sort of plays into these national pictures of who's being allowed to move up and down the countries here who's again allowed to move internationally that kind of thing um so it's like this very um complicated picture of movement of people really um and you know the upshot is some people are treated <laughs> treated much better than others.
0: Um, Definitely. Oh, uh, and I think it, it highlights further. It highlights the they come the fluidity that water represents, and uh, the ways in which you know the borders and um, uh, that are created by uh, nations um, by that.
1: Yeah. No. I mean absolutely you know and even in like this border that is supposedly porous you know people are having to get in, at times permission to cross other people still seem able to move over it pretty easily while this work is going on and you know particularly like you know both the Egyptian and Sudanese government set up ex- expert committees some people are on both of them you know they don't seem to have any issues they want to bring certain people to work with them they do have issues you know but so not even moving along the river is an
0: easy experience for everyone (laughs) i guess um fascinating so uh let me move on uh to my uh next question uh could you speak briefly on the focus on paper and indexing of archeological sites between uh, flooding and before the final flooding of the region and the opening of the high dam. Uh, It's interesting to think of paper as material too. Um, This may be a little bit further than what you got at, uh, but in its connections to water during the production of paper and the creation of a vast archive of files related to the controlling uh, the archeological sites uh, destined for preservation. Yeah, so basically paper
1: alongside water um, really sort of central to how this work all plays out. And I think, you know, this is something, paper in particular, this is like recognized more and more, I think, in heritage studies that that paper is like, and documentation is a really central concept um, to how heritage is made, recorded and made. Um, but you know also just em- empirically in this case um, a lot of the early work um, relates to again something called a documentation centre um, and like a history of um, documentation or in um, Egyptology in particular so before this campaign starts in 1960 um UNESCO has a suggestion from sort of former employees of the Egyptian, then Ag- Egyptian Antiquity Service that it sets up a documentation center related to the sort of pharaonic era tombs in Luxor um, for their recording. Um, and this is like a sort of age-old sort of paper-based recording is very important within Egyptology. You know, it's like a philological um discipline sort of at heart, uh, but it's also very important to archaeology too. So there's, like, UNESCO agrees that it's going to set up this documentation centre, which is launched in the mid-1950s. And as it becomes very obvious, the high dam is going to be built and um, everything is going to get flooded. Um, The focus of attention moves from Luxor to the sites behind the high dam. Um, And so from the start, paper... Is, is really central or paper and documentation are really central to how everyone is thinking about the region which is obviously like the visions of the region have been sort of reproduced in reports books various publications for decades um so every you know paper plays into everything um and so you know the result of this work, not only, I think you know. Traditionally, you would say, "Oh, yeah, they excavated a ton of material," um, which goes to collections in Egypt, Sudan, and globally. But actually, the other sort of consequence of this is that is the creation of a massive series of archives, which also exists sort of globally. Um, and you know, it's 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 about writing turning archival material into reports of this work and i it really it's like the the process that creates this this vision of nubia that still i think coheres um which is one where um you know the the, the nile is sort of and the flood is central to that and um the creation of this sort of desolate nile side land full of ancient remains. Um, and I think that really exists in this this interplay between the production of documentation um, and the way that documentation is archived and reported upon. And, you know, it's ultimately people, it's at every level of this. People are, like, sitting at their field site, writing up various bits of paper, recording things, moving into offices where they sort of file it, um sort of summarize it a bit more and then going home like bill adams was and like writing reports about it so at every sort of stage of this the sort of production of paper production and use of paper the production of documentation is, is like pretty central um and you know unesco um and the various governments and institutions occasionally will promote, like you know, say, actually, no, we're using the most up-to-date technology to record these monuments. Photogrammetry um, was one that was used a lot and is mentioned a lot in this in in like these sort of press articles. Um, you know, it's meant to provide a more sort of the most accurate sort of recording available. But when it comes down to it what people are really working with everywhere is, is paper. So it's, it's, it's like, you know, there are probably like millions of bits of this stuff um, that are produced as a result of this work. And, and, you know, they, they now are in circulation globally um, continue to be in circulation, continue to like create this representation, which is why I think alongside um, you know there's the idea of ancient Egypt um, being very widespread, you know, why there's also like a sort of an idea of Nubia that's that's widespread. It's, it's through the movement, circulation, um, reinscription of paper and archives um, sort of constantly. Um, yeah, at the same time, these are archives that aren't actually all that tied together. <laughs> Like you know, they're sort of all over the place. Um, they're not necessarily in conversation with one another now. I don't think um, sort of a very messy sort of process of paperwork and archiving. Um, and so it's it's yet it still produces, I think, what has become like a pretty coherent vision. You know, and you think even, like, I guess, you know, one thing to think about is, like, you know, the production of photographs or the printing of photographs onto paper as well means it's just everywhere. <laughs> and, that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of photos of this this work that are produced um, that are also helping this along. Um, and, I, I again, I think the other thing this sort of enables sort of discussion of is the way that these very fine-grained material practices of like writing and and putting things on paper actually then play into these much bigger sort of global, national, global, regional narratives that are part of this work and part of this history. And it's, it's like, I think thinking about paper is a way of like thinking about sort of the various scales at which this is taking place um you know and the way they're sort of constantly in conversation um yeah so and ultimately of course i've put it all down on paper i guess you know it's there it's even as um everyone you know libraries now buy ebooks you know there's still like a hard back you know paper-based version of this book and it's just like Yet another instantiation of this process, in a sense.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating because think about the connection to the paper archive and the vast bureaucracy uh, that it uh, it represents, and then the fact that you, your synthesis of it is then reported in paper.
1: I, I mean, you know, I was like thinking in a sense, it can't help but produce a bureaucracy, right? You know, I think UNESCO, an organization like UNESCO is very often deemed to be bureaucratic. But one thing, this sort of campaign, even as UNESCO was sort of like half in control of it, half not in control of it, one thing this campaign inevitably produces <laughs> produces is more bureaucracy. It's like a self-fulfilling it's prophecy. Fair. Um you know and it, i think it continues to be that as you know and i think it does it's interesting also i guess yeah to think of archaeology as not just being a discipline of like things that are dug up from the earth but like ultimately a discipline of of material that's produced you know i think when you um if you're, if you're trained in archaeology, I think very early on you're taught that, like, archaeology is destruction, because what you're doing is you're digging up stuff and sort of, uh, I guess, like, quite often, like, a relationships in the soil that will never, therefore, be available again. But, you know, ultimately, it's also a process of construction, isn't it? Because... That material has to be that what you've just dug up i guess has to be represented in some way and the way you do that is by putting it down on paper uh, and you know when i was trained to excavate like 20 years ago one of the most important skills was like learning basically like technical drawing um you know you would like draw like the section is the side of the one you draw a section drawing and a section drawing is like a drawing of one of the sides of an archaeological trench and you map out where the stratigraphy um uh, which you know the interplay between the various sort of parts of the soil in there or whatever is 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 like or the features within it um exists so you draw that and you know you learn how to do technical drawing but it, you know, ultimately it's again it's something you put down on paper and even as like these days that gets digitized, that relationship between sort of stuff that is excavated and stuff that you write it down on is still there and you know I think that's all you know it it's, it helps to think of that as as much as a, a constructive process than as a destructive one. And I think it, you know it really sort of helps put that the discipline of archaeology sort of in into wider perspective of, as a a field that is productive of its own realities, <laughs> uh, and and what that means sort of in terms of its its histories and the and the material it has excavated and helped move around the world. Um, which this you know this book details one part of, I guess, but you know it's obviously a much
0: wider story. Very true, very true. Um, so finally, you speak throughout uh, of the throughout this book uh, of the and I quote, "view from the boat," uh, and I found this particularly striking. I mean, you use it throughout the text, but then I found it particularly striking thinking about. the, uh, uh, the display of the Temple of Dendur at the Met in New York City, and it's not how the border that is um, that fronts it is not just the border or, or view from the Nile or connection to the Nile, but you know connection to this this perspective, uh, and I think this perspective works to distance the viewer from the sites. People being displaced, as you say, but it also speaks to the changing patterns of the Nile and access to the land, uh, because, you know, the, the access that boats or uh, people to the water and land uh, would, would have as, as the Nile changes its flow. But what is the, And so what does the future hold for those who have been displaced by the projects to dam the Nile in the 20th century?
1: That's, that's, a, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's unclear, personally, to me, um, what the future is. Clearly, there have been, um, in the last 15 to 20 years, like more and more calls for a Nubian right to return. And I think this is happening on both sides of the border. Um, Clearly this is all implicated in um, sort of political changes in both Egypt and Sudan and sort of, you know, what has happened in both of them over the last decade. Um, I think it's very unclear um even as there's been like this generational shift i think that those calls will be successful in a way that and i don't want to speak for nubians but you know like will be successful in a way that nubians might want them to be i think you know there has been more visibility for them but whether that sort of translates into anything Practical is like obviously another question entirely, um, but I think you know one thing. Going back to the view from the boat idea is that that view is still pretty predominant. Um, you know, if you go visit that region, you know one of the things people do is they go on tour boats up and down Lake Nasser that stop at the ancient sites. Um, in the, you know, I mean, they're not really ancient. They're sort of contemporary contemporary agglomerations of these temples as they've been moved to various places. You go visit the Temple of Dendur, you know, the temple is set um, on top of a sort of, it sort of has a moat, doesn't it? And like, you know, it's set in a sort of conservatory, essentially like facing out onto Central Park, all these things sort of reiterate this sort of idea that these places were like isolated um, within landscapes um, and there weren't really people around, (laughs) I think. Um, And it's, you know, I, I think at the same time, there is clearly more awareness that what, you know, what happened to the Nubians. Um, if you visit the Nubia Museum, it does raise the migration as something that happened. Um, whether or not Nubian groups were happy with that depiction, it's it's there. I think, you know, there's sort of also, there is tourism related to the Nubian villages around Aswan now. Um, And so there's this awareness that the Nubians are a population who exist um, that's sort of international, I guess. But I don't think that means that sort of calls for a right to return are necessarily going to be acted upon in any sort of positive sense. Um, I think it's it's a very... Um you know it's a it's it's a hugely like difficult situation for Nubians in that sense. um, but again, I don't you know, I can't really speak for them um, but you know that's my my sense is that these calls will be raised. there may be some movement at least sort of in rhetorically to doing something. But whether that plays out, I think, is, like, another question. And just, you know, it's it's clear that these visions of, of Nubia's past sort of play into that on some level. Um, they're not, you know, the, the major or, you know, they're not the only thing that's doing this, but they're always there. Um, and they enabled the migration to happen or the resettlement to happen in the first place on some level. So, um, you know, whether that means there's then, you know, I think there's probably some sort of um, ethical obligation for archaeologists to engage that somehow. Um, And there may, I mean, there may be more of a, sense that that has to happen even even amongst archaeologists but again I'm not 100% sure you know Um, there may be like slow change as archaeology in general I think sort of starts to understand its history a bit more critically but I wouldn't want to I'm not like 100% sure that that means these issues will be engaged with um with any degree of sort of force um so it's sort of it's an unresolved situation i think let's put it that way
0: yeah no i think that's a good way to to leave it uh and uh but there are definitely scholars out there working to give voice yeah so like so you know mena
1: aga being one is sort of Thinking, you know, who's a, a sort of an architect, right. um, is thinking through, I think, ways that some form of, you know, w- whatever form of return might happen. Um, it's very critical. Um, and so, you know, people like her are, are going to be like the sort of the
0: future of no, this. Uh, this is definitely part um, of the dec- decolonial moment. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. Well, Will, uh, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time. Uh, today, uh, but we're <laughs> glad to have you. Um, to conclude, if I may ask, what are you working on now? Um, so um, I've got a few
1: projects um, I'm sort of trying to work on, one of which is moving, thinking about sort of the connection between dams, uh, irrigation, archaeological survey and basically like indigenous dispossession um to sort of a wider series of scales um you know nubia is not an isolated case um dam building and modernization were obviously a fairly sort of powerful um sort of thing during the 20th century um as was, you know, the connected displacement of populations. So I'm sort of wondering how to do a wider project about that. Um, I'm not sure what form that will take. Um, I'm also interested in thinking about heritage more from um, as something where I guess, you know, I, I think heritage is sort of historiographically traditionally viewed as sort of entirely an imposition from europe um and it's obviously its history is very tied to european conceptions of sort of past architecture archaeology um but at the same time i think what this book helps reveal is that other people had agency within that process uh say in the global south just you know to use that term um and I think there are wider stories to be told there. Um, also, um, I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to work out how to write an like an alternative history of archaeology in general, um, which is um, it's a it's a it's a slow process, but it might be happening. <laughs> There's a lot of working out how that sort of narrative might be written. Um, yeah, so I've got like various projects I'm sort of slowly now working on as I recover from this one.
0: No, that those sound like some great projects uh, and uh, we look forward to, to seeing them in the future. Uh, and I want to thank you for being on the show today and really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. And uh, take care.
1: Thank you. You too. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you. (laughs)